the 2020 presidential election is around the corner. Let's do the right thing. You know I had to get that in there. That's a pretty long corner, Mr. Spike. Lee. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. But I'll take it. I got the feeling that something right. Better than starting with a Trump I'm clip, so scared right? in case I fall off my chair. You're welcome. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From middle Pacifica with Radio you. in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also up in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI and Round Mountain on KKRN and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you, so you cannot escape us on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, just to name a few. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, well, Donald Trump is jetting off to Vietnam today for his second summit with North Korea's Kim Jong-un as diplomatic, military, and nuclear experts are all concerned, wringing their hands about what Donald Trump may promise to give away in his desperation to get something that even looks like uh, success after his previous summit last year in Singapore yielded, well, pretty much nothing at all, nothing tangible, and it allowed the North to keep growing its nuclear arsenal since that time. But should those experts be worried about what could happen this week? One of them, Stephen Schwartz of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the keepers of the so-called doomsday clock, joins us shortly for a preview of what we should or shouldn't expect from the next highly staged piece of security reality TV theater. Is that a good way to put it, Desi Doyne? <laughs> That's actually a really good way to put it. I'm impressed. That from uh, the two nuclear-armed leaders, one of which is much crazier than the other. Take your pick about which one that might be. We'll talk about that as well. Also, if time allows, some thoughts on the Academy Awards on Sunday, as yes, even though I don't know if 
anybody even mentioned his name during the ceremony. I uh, did you did you hear anybody mention you know, Donald Trump? Now that you mention it, no. I don't think I they don't, did. I don't think anybody mentioned him by name at all. Therefore, he had to find a way to insert himself into the proceedings today in uh, as expected one of the most obnoxious ways possible actually. We'll see if we can get to that a little bit later um to help us maybe talk us off the nuclear ledge after <laughs> speaking with Stephen Schwartz. Anyway, first, the non-nuclear fallout continues from last week's unprecedented overturning of a U.S. House election by the state of North Carolina, which called for a new election in the state's 9th Congressional District after determining that the one held last November was so tainted by the Republican absentee ballot fraud scheme by the campaign of Republican Mark Harris that a new election needed to be held. After uh, stunning testimony, you will recall, by Harris's own son on the witness stand during a week-long public inquiry held by the State Board of Elections, in which John Harris said that his father knew about previous fraudulent efforts carried out by the guy, the contractor that Mark Harris had hired to run his absentee ballot program last year. After that, Mark Harris himself admitted that, yes, a new election was needed during his testimony in those hearings. And then he abruptly walked off the witness stand, stormed out of the building, thus avoiding under oath cross-examination by the attorney for the uh, Democratic candidate Dan McCready. Perhaps a, a smart move for Mark Harris, as I'll explain in a moment. For his part, uh, after the unanimous 5-0 to zero bipartisan vote for the uh, by the Board of Elections calling for that new election last Thursday, McCready, uh, the Democrat here, lost no time on Friday launching himself back into the new race that is now upcoming for North Carolina's 9th Congressional District U.S. House race. This is so much bigger right now than just one election. When you see this kind of cheating, this kind of fraud, people are saying this is the biggest case of election fraud in living memory. When you see a culture of corruption built by someone else's campaign, this is bigger than one race. This is bigger than one election. This is about what does it mean to live in a democracy? What does it mean to be an American? And we are going to keep fighting. That was Dan McCready at his uh, rally on Friday at a brewery near Charlotte, uh, who, uh, according to uh, local station WSOC, used the event to call for or to announce, I should say, his uh, the fact that he was running again in this election. And while I don't know if it is the, as he said, the biggest case of election fraud in living memory, uh, I could point to a few cases that I suspect were as fraudulent and even much larger. Among them, Ohio's 2004 presidential election comes to mind. So do the races uh, this past year for governor and lieutenant governor in Georgia last November. Uh, the last of which is still being challenged, by the way, in court after 175,000 votes disproportionately in African-American communities seems to have disappeared altogether from the state's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that were overseen last year by Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who went on 
to be declared the winner of that governor's race. But in any event, there will be another 2018 election in North Carolina in 2019. And now we know who the uh, Democratic candidate will be, or at least most likely be. McCready and his team are reportedly thinking about challenging the state law that dictates that a new election also must include a new primary election. Meanwhile, Harris has not yet uh, said whether he will be re-entering that, uh, that uh, redo that do-over election. He said that he's going to assess the situation and assess his health after he had claimed last week that two recent strokes resulted in memory lapses while he was testifying during the State Board of Elections hearing, which he stormed out of. It was it was strokes, Desi Doyen. That's what made him lie on the That's stand. That's his story today, and he's sticking to it yep. today. Uh, now, even if Harris does not does uh, decide to run, he may not be uncontested if, in fact, they hold a primary. Matthew Ridenauer, formerly Mecklenburg County Commissioner, says he's very interested in entering the race on the Republican side. The Board of Elections has not yet set a date for this new election, but it would likely be very hard for Harris to run and win at this point. If there was no primary and, you know, they just redid the election, I suspect that's one of the reasons why McCready is uh, hoping, thinking about, uh, well, would prefer to not hold primaries since it would allow potentially a different Republican candidate to have a second bite at the apple. In the face of last year's uh, candidate essentially getting caught with his hand in the absentee ballot cookie jar as uh According to the Raleigh News and Observer, a grand jury will now consider whether criminal charges are warranted in the alleged absentee mail-in ballot scheme in eastern North Carolina. That, according to Wake County District Attorney Lauren Freeman on Friday, she said that uh, she hopes to present findings from her investigation into the 2016 general election, as well as now the 2018 primary election in Bladen County, North Carolina, where all of this absentee ballot fraud appears to have taken place, that she's going to uh, present this information to a grand jury within the next month. Freeman said that her review of the evidence that the State Board of Elections amassed during this investigation over the past few months and the public hearings just last week when uh, Harris appears to have lied under oath, that that could all lead to additional criminal charges above and beyond what she had uh, been planning on or working towards uh, previously. Freeman said the scope of her investigation has now steadily expanded since January 2018, back when John David, the prosecutor in Bladen, Columbus and Pr Brunswick counties, had asked her then to take on the case after he had bowed out due to conflicts of interest. Freeman said that as this investigation, which was originally just into the general election of 2016, has been uh, going on, additional irregularities, nice way to put it, or things that should be reviewed as part of a criminal investigation have now come to light. So uh, her probe includes looking at potential crimes, 
in all of this regarding the mail-in absentee ballots, as well as the financing of any of these related operations and the people who had knowledge of it. Among the matters that also came up in last week's hearings is that Mark Harris paid more than $100,000 to a political action committee to pay off that GOP contractor, uh, the, the ones who carried off the alleged fraud on behalf of his campaign. Now, campaigns are not allowed to coordinate at all with political action committees, with PACs, um, though Harris, a Baptist preacher, two-time federal candidate now, claimed on the stand just last week that he had no idea about that basic tenet of uh, campaign finance laws, that you couldn't work with, uh, the campaigns can't work with PACs, much less pay them off. After he's run for Congress twice. It's amazing he neglected to learn that part of it. He didn't know that important part. So uh, he's uh, now, may there may be, uh, you know, new charges related to his comments on the stand last week when he uh, appears to have told a number of lies on the stand and uh, withheld documents from the uh, election board that had subpoenaed them, text and emails that did come out last week that he had told a family member, oh, he thought they would never come. That'll never come out. And then he was asked about that and he lied about it. So we'll see. I don't see, frankly, how Mark Harris could even run in this uh, redo election, much less win. So we'll see. Uh, The state board has also talked to federal prosecutors in the past about investigating what was going on in North Carolina. The state had referred criminal charges against the same GOP contractor for the same type of absentee ballot fraud. They had referred that to Trump's U.S. attorney after the 2016 election, the first time it happened. But the administration, which pretends to care about fraudulent elections, took no action. On Friday, finally, Donald Trump was, after remaining mum on all of this alleged fraud by the campaign of the candidate that he had endorsed and campaigned for in North Carolina, Uh, He was asked about this and was finally forced to comment after saying nothing about it all of these past months. uh, He was finally forced to comment when he was questioned by reporters at the White House uh, in the Oval Office on Friday. He offered this uh, this word salad response with a whole bunch of completely, frankly, fraudulent claims about what he described as voter fraud. I condemn any election fraud. And uh, when I look at what's happened in California with the votes, when I look at what happened, as you know, there was just a case where they found a million fraudulent votes. No, uh, they when didn't. When I look at what's happened in Texas, excuse me, excuse me. When I look at what's happened in Texas, when I look at that catastrophe that took place in Florida, where the Republican candidates kept getting less and less and less and less, unfortunately, because they kept uh, counting Rick the Scott votes, and yes, Ron uh, ended up winning their election, but uh-huh. it was disgraceful what happened there. Mm-hmm. So I look at a lot of different places all over the country. I condemn any voter fraud of any kind, whether no, it's Democrat don't. or Republican. No, you don't. But when you look at some of the things that happened in California, what? in particular, what? when you look at what's happened in Texas with all of those votes that they recently found were nope. uh, not exactly properly done, Wrong again. I condemn all of it. And that includes North Carolina. If anything, you know, I guess they're going to be doing a final report, but I'd like to see the final report. But any form of election fraud, 
I condemn. No, no, actually, you don't. Not at all. Not by a long shot. Uh, first off, uh, very quickly, because uh, I know we got to get to my guest here. There was zero f- voter fraud, voter fraud, as Donald Trump called it, in North Carolina, at least that we know of. The voters there did nothing wrong. This was insider campaign election fraud, period. Leave the voters alone. But it is, you know, nice that Donald Trump tried to blame them so that Republicans could then continue to press for new restrictive voting laws to try to keep Democratic leaning voters from being able to cast a vote at all. While, you know, doing nothing about real threats to elections like this case of insider election fraud by the Republicans. Also, he said, when you look at when you look at what's happening in Texas, Uh, Well, there's nothing happening. Well, there is something, but it's not what Donald Trump is suggesting there. It appears that Trump was referring to the recent announcement by the secretary of state nominee, a guy by the name of David Whitley and by the Republican attorney general, Ken Paxton. He is still, by the way, facing felony securities fraud indictments himself. They claimed a couple of weeks ago that nearly 100,000 non-citizens had registered to vote in Texas since 1991. They ordered county clerks to begin the process of removing those people from the rolls within 30 days. But uh, just days after sending out this list to county election officials, the secretary of state uh, appointee, nominee, whatever he is, who, who now looks unlikely to be confirmed, by the way, by the Texas state legislature because of all of this. That uh, secretary of state guy began contacting counties to let them know that, oops, we were wrong. Tens of thousands of people are wrongly on that list. They were, in fact, citizens, not non-citizens. They had gotten driver's licenses years ago before they became citizens. And then they became citizens and then they registered to vote um, and which is not illegal in the slightest. Uh, And yet there the order was put out to purge these tens of thousands of perfectly legal voters, which the state is now facing a host of lawsuits over. Meanwhile, in California, he mentioned, you look what's happening there. A million votes showing up. I don't know. Uh, Trump was just making stuff up about a million fraudulent votes coming in, presuming uh, we even know what the hell he was talking about there. Votes were tallied in the weeks after Election Day. That's what happens after Election Day. They were added to the to the counts. They were, uh, you know, vo- uh, votes that came in via absentee uh, mail in ballots and so forth. Perfectly legal votes that come in by mail. They're not tallied until after they have checked to make sure that the voter is properly registered and that he or she hasn't already voted on Election Day at the polls. So, yes, California is a large state. There's a lot of vote by mail voters. So it takes time to canvas and count those votes and add them to the totals, which resulted in tons of Republicans losing their seats in the U.S. House. I suspect that's what Trump is upset about. There is zero evidence of fraud either there or in the Florida election that he referred to. So he was just making stuff up. Our president, as usual, not knowing what the hell he's talking about. But, you know, it's uh, it's one thing when Donald Trump offers rambling comments to reporters in the Oval Office. It's quite another thing when he's meeting one one on one with the head of a nuclear armed state, as he will do this week with North Korea's Kim Jong-un, 
So those stakes will be much higher there, and um, we'll discuss those stakes and what many experts now fear could happen, even if I don't, by the way, with one of those experts. Stephen Schwartz of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists joins us next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Atomic cocktail. Mmm. Sounds delicious. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Speaking of fact-free word salad from the President of the United States, here's what Donald Trump had to say about his relationship with now nuclear-armed North Korea and its leader Kim Jong-un. While speaking to a gaggle of reporters at the White House on Friday in advance of his second summit with Kim in Hanoi, Vietnam this week, following up on his previous summit last June in Singapore. On North Korea, your own administration officials say that Kim Jong-un has not actually decided yet whether he wants to denuclearize. So how can you meet with him if he doesn't even want to get the gold? We have had such a great relationship since I got to office. If I were not elected president, you would have been in a war with North Korea. We now have a situation where the relationships are good, where there's been no nuclear testing, no missiles, no rockets. We got our hostages back. Uh, we have many of the remains back and coming back rapidly. The remains of our great warriors from many, many years ago, and the families are so thrilled and so happy. Uh, we've had a great relationship. Uh, the Singapore was a tremendous success. Only the fake news likes to portray it otherwise. We would have gone, we would have been, we would have literally been in a war with North Korea, in my opinion, had I not been elected. NBC News today, however, reports that in the eight months since President Trump declared North Korea, quote, no longer a nuclear threat, Last year, following the Singapore summit, the reclusive state advanced both its nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs and failed to provide an accounting of its arsenal, according to multiple U.S. intelligence assessments. And intelligence officials tell NBC News that they have grown increasingly doubtful that Kim intends to ever dismantle the nuclear program at the center of Trump's diplomatic gamble. Trump has said an end to North Korea's nuclear weapons program is his goal, but so far there is no public evidence that it is shared by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. As the two leaders are set to meet again on Wednesday in Hanoi, the White House is lowering expectations for the second summit this week in Vietnam, while senior U.S. officials and North Korea experts are expressing mounting concerns that Donald Trump will give away more than he gets in return. One former senior U.S. official told NBC, quote, one of the worst possible outcomes is he makes some crazy deal pledging to withdraw U.S. troops for a vague promise of denuclearization. Among the possible incentives the U.S. could offer North Korea during the summit is to establish diplomatic interests sections, 
one in Pyongyang and one in Washington, according to current and former officials. The establishment of so-called interest sections, which are bare-bones diplomatic outposts, would offer an unprecedented initial opening toward diplomatic relations between the two nations. The U.S., specifically Donald Trump, without approval of State Department or military officials, as some fear, could also offer to formally end the war on the Korean Peninsula more than six decades after North Korea and the U.N. command signed the 1953 Armistice Agreement. That option would involve a series of further meetings and negotiations to determine the fate of the Korean demilitarized zone between the North and the South and the future of U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula. Ask whether U.S. Uh, whether withdrawing U.S. troops from the peninsula could be a topic of discussion during the Hanoi meeting. Trump said last week, quote, that is not one of the things on the table. Pressed on the issue, however, he later said, quote, everything is on the table. Some senior uh, Trump administration officials and others involved in the negotiations are concerned that establishing interest sections and agreeing to end uh, to an end of uh, of the North Korean war, in addition to a second presidential meeting for Kim, would amount to de facto U.S. recognition of North Korea as a nuclear state. That, officials say, is particularly concerning if Trump does not get significant concessions from North Korea in return. But isn't it clear that, yes, North Korea now is officially, whether we like it or not, a nuclear state, no matter any official designation one way or another? The nightmare scenario heading into this second summit between Trump and Kim isn't so much Fire and fury and millions dead, the Associated Press reports over the weekend. Rather, some experts fear the meeting could result in an ill-considered deal that allows North Korea to get everything it wants while giving up very little, even as what they describe as the mercurial leaders of both nations trumpet a blockbuster success after the next meeting. There's little argument, AP's Foster Klug notes, that just sitting down together again in the same room this week in Hanoi is a positive sign for two men who uh, had seemed to be flirting with a second Korean War back in 2017. And there is, as the White House trumpeted ahead of this summit, a, quote, tremendous opportunity here to address a monumental problem that has flummoxed generations of policymakers. But with the stakes so high right now, a growing chorus of experts highlight the risk that Trump burned by criticism that the results of his June meeting with Kim in Singapore were vague at best and outright failure at worst, will ignore his more cautious aides and try to strike a deal that's cobbled together on the fly with little preparatory work. Well, that sounds like Donald Trump, doesn't it? Uh, why is this potentially dangerous, AP asks? Well, because, as uh, Klug argues, when it comes to North Korean nuclear diplomacy, all deals are not created equal. Here to help us understand what that means, what's at stake, and what could happen, both good and bad, presumably, is our old friend Stephen Schwartz, otherwise known as Atomic Analyst on the Twitters. Stephen Schwartz is a nuclear weapons policy analyst, 
and the former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. They are the ones who keep that infamous doomsday clock, that warning to the world of how close we may be at any given time to annihilation on planet Earth. Stephen is now a non-resident senior fellow, uh, fellow with the Bulletin and also the former editor of the Non-Proliferation Review. Stephen Schwartz, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Glad to be here, Brad. Thank you. I got to tell you, I have uh, I've been reading a lot uh, about this and a, a lot of hand wringing about what could or couldn't happen at the second <laughs> summit. And as as you and hopefully my listeners know, I'm no fan of Donald Trump. Nonetheless, I would rather have him talking to Kim and claiming to be his friend, even if Kim and Trump are just pretending. Uh, but before we get into the reasons for the hand wringing uh, from those experts, Stephen, uh, w- what do you expect from this week's summit? And what would you uh, like to see from this uh, from this summit? And I realize those may not be uh, two of the same things there. <laughs> well, probably not. Well, uh, first off, uh, you know, in general, it's almost always a good thing when uh, world leaders who uh, are not seeing eye to eye on issues are talking mm-hmm. uh, rather than not talking or arguing with each other over Twitter mm-hmm. or you know, setting up military confrontations up to and including war. So that's, you, that's generally a good thing. With Donald Trump, however, you can't really be sure because he's very much kind of a captive of the last person that he spoke with and tends to take their perspective. He's also pretty mercurial. He can turn on a dime. And he's desperate for attention. Uh, he's desperate for a win. And therefore, that makes it more likely that he will... Uh, as you said, you know, try to strike some sort of deal that allows him at least on the face of it to come out of this looking like he accomplished something very much like the last summit eight months ago or so. Mm-hmm. And that could be problematic. I mean, the way I look at it is that uh, Kim Jong-un has Trump right where he wants him. I mean, every Kim stands to benefit from this summit much more than Trump does, just which was the case the last time mm-hmm. uh, as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, but let's acknowledge that this is very much a backwards process. In any normal presidential administration, there would have been months of preparatory work at mid-level and higher-level government agencies, on both on our side and in North Korea, working to come together to figure out what the parameters were for any particular deal, what issues need to be ironed out, and only when all of that work was essentially done would a summit be announced. In this case, Trump announced early on, in fact, right at the end of the last summit, that he very much wanted to have another one before there was anything to really summit about. So the incentive now is for North Korea, and this is probably what they've done, to hold out on agreeing to anything in particular until Trump is there, because A, he's coming, he's already announced it, he's in the air right now, and B, it's, you know, they have some sense of what he's like to deal with as a negotiator in these kinds of fora. So who knows what's going to happen? You know, the ideal, I suppose, would be some sort of agreement where, you know, North Korea agrees to, over time, uh, dismantle its nuclear weapons program, and get rid of its nuclear weapons, but that's not going to happen. That is not in any way, shape, or form possible. Uh, So it's really hard to say what will come out of this. I mean, there's talk about perhaps some sort of agreement 
that would formally end uh, uh, the war, mm-hmm. uh, the Korean War, but it's not going to be an actual armistice, uh, and therefore it's likely to be, if that happens, just another piece of paper that shows that both sides have agreed that the war is technically over, but they're not willing to actually, certainly North Korea isn't going to be willing to commit to formally ending it without some serious concessions on the part of the United States and South Korea, including the removal of, I suspect, quite a number, if not all, of U.S. troops in South Korea. So and, who knows? And, and I want to talk about some of those specifics, but when uh, Donald Trump says, as he has repeatedly said, that he is, you know, that he truly believes that we would be at war right now with North Korea uh, had he not been elected president, I, I understand that when uh, he and uh, then-President Obama met in the Oval Office before Trump's inauguration, that Obama had warned him that North Korea was going to be one of his most difficult and dangerous challenges that the new administration would face. I also understand that Hillary Clinton was quite hawkish on a number of military-related issues, but is there any evidence to support Trump's claim, uh, as you see it, Stephen Schwartz, about the U.S. now that we would have now been at war with the North, if not for him, this claim that he's repeated over and over again? No, I don't think so, in a word. Uh, my colleague and my successor at the Nonproliferation Review said it quite well the other day. Donald Trump is both, in, in this instance, is both the arsonist and the firemen. He inflamed an already tense situation with North Korea and made it much worse and threatened North Korea and specifically Kim Jong-un repeatedly with nuclear annihilation, and it was very clear Mm -hmm. that that's what he was doing. It was certainly clear to North Korea. And then he decided, well, okay, let's, let's ratchet this down a bit, and maybe we can have a deal. And maybe it's because he's thinking about it in terms of a political win. Maybe it's because he's thinking about these issues as a developer. And if you remember at the last summit in June, he showed a very slick public relations type film to Kim a couple of times, I believe, that basically showed North Korea turning into some sort of touristy paradise with golf courses and and beachside resorts. As if, you know, the best thing that we can do for North Korea is to simply, uh, you know, let the floodgates open and and turn it into some sort of builder's paradise. Maybe that would be good for Kim, but I don't know that that's good necessarily for the North Korean people. So, uh, you know, who's to say? But he basically set up a situation that turned a, a very bad already situation into one that could potentially have tripped over into war, and then pulled back and said, okay, no, wait, so now he wants credit for stopping the quote-unquote war that he was threatening to launch. So I don't think that that's, I mean, that may, may make him feel good, you know, you know, part of his ego, but it is, I don't think he gets credit for stopping the very thing that he, he threatened to start. Well, uh, l- let, me, let me work from that point, Stephen, because, uh, and you call this sort of a backwards process where they agree to meet before they actually know what they're meeting about, etc. NBC News reports that in recent weeks, researchers have reportedly discovered a secret ballistic missile base in North Korea, one of as many uh, as, uh, uh, as 20 undisclosed missile sites in the country. U.S. officials also acknowledge that North Korea has increased its production 
production of fuel for nuclear weapons at multiple secret sites, all since Trump and Kim first met last summer. So it sure seems apparent to me that, you know, Trump was being played by Kim. But in fact, Trump doesn't care as long as he can, you know, claim some form of detente. Kim has not, in fact, fired any test missiles lately. So Trump can claim that things are improving. As I noted at the top here, Stephen, I'm no fan of Trump. But in truth, I'm I'm much more concerned right now about Donald Trump. I see him as posing a greater threat to the country and the world right now than I do uh, about Kim. First, am I wrong in that assessment? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, yes, North Korea and Kim Jong-un has nuclear weapons, and they're going to have them for quite some period of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is not a good thing. On the other hand, China has nuclear weapons. And, uh, you know, Iran was threatening to develop them until we stopped it with mm-hmm. a very effective deal. So, uh, you know, they are currently deterred. They're deterred by our nuclear weapons and also by some modicum of pressure from China not mm-hmm. to get too out of control. So mm-hmm. I'm not worried uh, at this point that North Korea is going to go off and, you know, launch an attack, either conventional or military, on South Korea or Japan or anybody else in the region, because Kim, for all of his faults, and Lord knows he's not, you know, an especially nice person. I mean, he, right. he executes his own relatives, yep. he imprisons many thousands of his own uh, people, uh, but he's not crazy. He's not insane, although that's the image that people like to portray. Mm-hmm. He is very canny, and he has discovered, as many other people who have sought nuclear weapons going up against the United States have discovered, that if you have a nuclear capability of your own, or more importantly, if you're perceived to have one, and your adversary, in this case Donald Trump, believes that you have one and you're ready to use it, you can hold the United States at bay. You can bring Donald Trump to you, to Mm -hmm. your doorstep, essentially, uh, to talk to you and make you, as the leader of North Korea, look very good, which is, frankly, I think all that Kim wanted out of the the very first summit, and he's about to get it uh, again. So, uh, you know, on the other side, you have Donald Trump, who controls, you know, has absolute authority over the U.S. nuclear arsenal, has threatened to use it in the past, has talked about the power being very important to him. I'm not especially worried, you know, day to day that he can, but I just today, as I was watching him get on the plane, mm-hmm. right after he got on Air Force One, his White House military aide, a Marine Corps aide, got on right behind him with the nuclear football, which is now flying over the Pacific Ocean to Vietnam. So he has the wherewithal anytime he wants, the ability unquestioned without having to ask anybody or get anybody's permission to use nuclear weapons anytime and anywhere. And that continues to be a very serious risk. And frankly, it would be a serious risk regardless of who's in the White House. It's just especially bad with him because he's such a mercurial uh, and, and curious person. So Yes, I I am more concerned at this point about what Trump may or may not do as opposed to what Kim may or may not do. Uh, Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, so that's I sort of feel like, you know what, if if Trump is placated, isn't that for now anyway, uh, you know, while he still has his finger on the nuclear trigger, isn't that a better outcome than continuing 
to increase saber rattling with the North. I mean, I feel like, you know, we got to triage our national security threats at this point, it seems to me. <laughs> like it or not, Trump is going to be in uh, in office at least for a while longer, maybe years longer. And it's not ideal. And I guess uh, we don't like North Korea necessarily increasing their arsenal. But calming our president down seems to me to be the best uh, outcome at the moment. Uh, Stephen, should we be concerned or or in favor of bringing our troops home with all of these experts worried that, oh, he may make some deal to bring our troops home? You know, if not all of them, many of them uh, from South Korea, where they've been stationed now for decades in a essentially a Cold War. Should we be concerned about that? Should we be concerned about ending the annual U.S. military exercises on the peninsula with the South and, uh, and and Japan as the North sees as provocative and a preparation for invasion. Uh, what are the actual dangers if we end the exercises and bring some of our troops home? Because frankly, to me, maybe I'm too dovish, but that all sounds kind of like a good idea to me. Am I wrong, Stephen? Well, there's nothing, you know, wanting, wanting peace, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. The problem with Trump's approach to this is that it's very transactional and unilateral. You'll recall that at the last summit in June, he decided on his own mm-hmm. that we were going to stop joint exercises with South Korea for the time being. And this was not a decision that had been discussed ahead of time or agreed to. It was mm-hmm. just something that he came up with in the summit, and I think it came as quite a shock to then Secretary of Defense Mattis and his national security advisor and other people. It certainly came as a surprise to South Korea. So anything that we do in that regard, whether it's exercises or troop reductions or withdrawals, needs to be done in concert with South Korea, with Japan, and so forth. It can't be something that Trump just decides to give away because he sees it as a way to uh, get a better deal from Kim Jong-un. I mean, Kim would like nothing more than to have U.S. troops out of, out of South Korea. You know, but they're there partly, uh, A, because we have a treaty, but B, they're also there as a tripwire, so that in case North Korea tries to do something, they're going to be taking on the United States very, very quickly and not just South Korea. And that's partly, even though it is obviously an expensive and somewhat politically difficult situation, it is something that has helped keep the peace there. So it, it, this can't be something that Trump just on his own decides to bargain away. I can certainly envision a world where those exercises get reduced and maybe eliminated and where the troops perhaps at one point in the future don't need to be there. But that's not a world that's going to exist anytime soon. And, you know, the question is, I mean, the long, long-standing U.S. policy has been that North Korea must get rid of its nuclear weapons and then we will discuss these other things. Trump is, would like to, I think, if he had his druthers, would turn this into something where, well, you know, we want you to get rid of it, but what can we get in the meantime? And I think there's some room to negotiate there, but frankly, he's not the kind of person that has either the, uh, you know, the, the mental capacity or the knowledge about the issues or the patience to be able to do it. And let's not forget that under him, you know, even, even though Mike Pompeo was not actively destroying mm-hmm. the State Department like Rex Tillerson was, uh, it's certainly woefully understaffed, so I honestly am not sure exactly, you know, how many people, apart from Steve Bagoon, are negotiating over there. I mean, normally you would have hordes of people in the government engaged in this process ahead of time, and again, that's not something that, you know, that we've done. So who knows what, what could turn out. You're not wrong to want those things, 
but I don't think they're likely to happen anytime soon. Well, I, I guess I'm, uh, if you say they're not likely to happen anytime soon, I suppose that's good. But there are a lot of people worried that, you know, that's what Trump is going to end up doing, that he's going to end up throwing in these things, an armistice with the North, promise to bring troops home, stop exercises. They say that like it's a bad thing. And I guess... Uh, what I'm wondering here is if that was a bad thing that these so-called experts are so worried about, is it because it is a real threat to Northeast uh, Asian security or is it because essentially Trump would be giving away all of the bargaining chips that we might want to use down the road in order for a real agreement, perhaps with a real president, to actually get rid of, uh, of, of nukes on the peninsula uh, in it's the north. a bad thing if you do it unilaterally and do not consult your allies and have their complete agreement before you announce something publicly. That's number one. Number two, it's bad if you do, are not cognizant of what the actual threats are and are so desperate to get a deal that you essentially give away the store, in which case your adversary, Kim Jong-un in this case, gets what he wants and all you get is the ability to look good on the public stage, you being Donald Trump, whereas the United States and South Korea and Japan are kind of left holding the bag. You know, this is, this is not a normal president or presidency, right. and we are not, this summit is not, I mean, it, it's, there, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with engaging in a summit like this, but in a normal presidency with a normal president, there would have been a huge amount of legwork. Mm -hmm. There would have been all sorts of side agreements that had been drawn up, and only when all of this stuff was dotted and eyed and so forth would would the president jet over to wherever he's going right. and sit down with with somebody on the other side of the table and work some things out. I mean, it doesn't. You know, the last time maybe that something spontaneous happened, not in this administration, would probably be with Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in 1986 in Reykjavik, Iceland, where mm -hmm. they were sitting down, and Reagan was saying, you know, Gorbachev's like, well, I've, I've just announced this plan to get rid of all nuclear weapons worldwide by 2000, and I'm frustrated that your administration isn't taking it seriously. And Reagan's like, why do we have to wait, you know, 15 or 20 years? Why can't we do it right away? And he caught his own advisors completely off guard. And yeah. Of course, they're not, hey, wait a minute, sir, you know, this is... <laughs> we have allies, you know, we've got NATO, we've got, you know, people, and we, we need these nuclear weapons, we can't get rid of them. And, but Reagan was an idealist, and, I, you know, despite all of his warmongering rhetoric uh, in the early years of administration, he came around and discovered and decided that, that it was actually much better to talk about eliminating nuclear weapons than to talk about building them up. Needless to say, we didn't get rid of nuclear weapons by the year 2000, uh, and that particular deal got scuttled over missile defense. But that's the last time we had some, you know, sort of pie-in-the-sky thinking and sort of ad hoc symmetry. Again, it's not really clear what's going to happen under Donald Trump, but it's the very fact that you're not sure what's going to happen yeah. that makes this so problematic and potentially dangerous depending on how it turns out. Oh yeah, and and I, uh, I appreciate as much as anyone that this is not a normal presidency. This is not the way these things are supposed to work. Like I said, uh, you know, national security triage at this point, just trying to make it through this uh, mess. And if Donald Trump uh, leaves happy, uh, you know, and and doesn't 
worsen the national security uh, situation. You know, I, I, I don't mind giving a treaty to North Korea, say the war is over, as long as, you know, I, I don't suspect, as you note, Stephen Schwartz, I don't suspect he's going to attack South Korea or Japan. At least I don't think. And I do know at the same time, you know, politically, a lot of Democrats, you know, they don't want to give Donald Trump credit for anything. And I understand that thinking. But in this case, national security, global security seems like it ought to, pardon the phrase, trump everything else, uh, even if that means holding our fire, if you will, for a few more years until we can get a real president in there. Stephen Torres, let me ask you one quick question. I only have a second here before I let you go. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, Donald Trump dissolved the uh, INF Treaty, the Intermediate uh, Nuclear Missile Treaty with Russia. Russia said, yeah, well, if U.S. is out, we're out, too. That, to me, actually seems like um, more of a threat than uh, what's going on currently in North Korea. Your thoughts on uh, ending that particular uh, decades-long treaty that was struck uh, between Reagan and the uh, Soviet Union, uh, what, 30, 40 years ago now? Right. Uh, well, foolish, I, and I remember well when that treaty was signed. That mm -hmm. was a very foolish and counterproductive decision. You know, if, if Russia is violating the treaty, and I think most experts agree that it is, and I certainly would count myself among them, you're basically rewarding them by saying, okay, you're violating this treaty rather than talking with you, and negotiating with you and figuring out a way to get you back into compliance, and there are mechanisms in, built into the treaty to do that, we're just going to destroy, we're just going to set this whole thing on fire and free you from any constraints from the treaty so you can build as many of these problematic weapons as possible and, and deploy them wherever you want and threaten us and threaten our allies. So there. I mean, <laughs> what is, <laughs> that doesn't make any strategic or military sense whatsoever. We have... First of all, we can't deploy those weapons ourselves in Europe. Nobody's going to take them. And we're not about to put ground-based missiles uh, in Japan or, or South Korea, which means that we would have to put sea-based weapons, you know, which are not regulated under the treaty. And, and, and so we could have done that anyway. So this whole thing smacks of, I mean, J John Bolton, who's now the National Security Advisor, is the person that trashed our agreement that was working mm -hmm. with North Korea when he came in with the George W. Bush administration right. in 2001. So he's behind that. He's very much behind the war in Iraq. He's now destroyed this, this INF treaty, and he has probably his sights set on the New START treaty, and he very much liked to kill off the agreement with Iran. So, you know, if now INF is, is probably gone, it's, you know, there's a six-month clock that started when this announcement was made, so mm -hmm. it's, we're not out of it yet, but we're likely to be. And if that goes, the only thing that's left is new start, which is uh, expires in 2021. And if that goes, there will be absolutely no international constraints on anything that Russia can do, which means, again, that it can build and deploy as many weapons as it wants. And that is not good for our security. That's not for good for the security of the world. Yeah, that, I understand, is is the big concern right now, uh, Stephen. It's the 1980s all over again. Yeah. It's pointless, it, it's dangerous, and it's expensive. Uh, you were uh, at once uh, the uh, at the bulletin, the publisher of the bulletin of the, of the Atomic Scientists, uh, now a senior fellow there. If uh, if it was up to you at this point, would we be moving that doomsday clock uh, closer to midnight, farther from mid midnight, keeping it where it is, or should I ask you again in a few days after the summit with uh, Kim Jong Un? <laughs> 
Well, you know, the bulletin just announced the, the clock setting uh, last month, and it's, it's basically staying where it was set last year, which is two and a half minutes to midnight, which is the closest that we've been since 1953. Uh, I'm comfortable, although that's probably not the right word, but <laughs> right. I'm comfortable with where it is currently set, given where we are. Uh, I don't think anything that's likely to happen in the next few days in Hanoi is going to change things dramatically, at least I hope not one way uh, or, or another. We're certainly not going to denuclearize North Korea right away, and I don't think we're about to, you know, go full reverse and start to get into a military confrontation with them. So trend-wise, things are very much moving in the wrong direction. You know, having a nice chat, a nice sit-down with Kim Jong-un, you know, over some, uh, uh, you know, uh, great foe or whatever, you know, in, in Hanoi, well, Donald Trump wouldn't eat that. But in any <laughs> case, that's not... Uh, that's not uh, going to change things uh, too much from where we are, um, but I hope in the future that we can make some significant progress, reverse some of these horrendous and problematic decisions, and get back on track, because otherwise the clock will definitely be moving in the wrong direction very soon. Oh, boy. Okay, and here I thought we were going to get out of this one with, uh, Stephen, with <laughs> you saying, okay, we're at status quo, and I was going to take that as a great victory that things weren't changing, but... Well, status quo <laughs> is not great. I mean, it's like, I, I uh, know. you know... <laughs> I, but, uh, status quo is the basement is filling up with water. I still have about a foot left of breathable air, <laughs> but the water is still coming in. <sighs> All right, you'll never leave, you'll never let me get out of one of our segments happy, Stephen Schwartz. <laughs> uh, please follow him, uh, of course, at uh, on the Twitters at Atomic Analyst. Uh, you can, of course, uh, read his work over at the. Oh, and I don't have it. Uh, the, do you remember the website for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, Stephen? Offhand, thebulletin.org. Thebulletin.org. Thank you very much, my friend. Uh, we will be talking to you again uh, soon as the water continues to fill the basement. Stephen Schwartz, thanks again for joining us on the broadcast today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Okay, quick break, and we're back with, um, oh, let's lighten things up, shall we, Desi Doyen? Let's, please. <laughs> Hooray for Hollywood. That's right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Hooray for Hollywood. That screwy ballyhooey Hollywood. Where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic. With just Welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, yes, from Hollywood, just blocks from the Dolby Theater, which was uh, alive and very loud with helicopters hovering above and driving me crazy on Sunday night. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Did I mention that? Yes, you did now. Oh, okay. Uh, before leaving for the Hanoi Summit in Vietnam with Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump found time to start his Monday by blasting director Spike Lee as racist. 
In an early morning tweet following Sunday night's Oscar ceremony, yes, that's right, Donald Trump blasted Spike Lee as racist. I suspect uh, Trump really doesn't want folks to see black Klansmen. uh, And as far as Trump is concerned, uh, that would be for a very good reason. Donald Trump said that Lee's acceptance speech when he uh, won his very first Oscar on Sunday night for Best Adapted Screenplay, uh, that that amounted to a racist hit against him, against Donald Trump. In the speech, Lee referred to his family's history in the U.S., which he said could be traced to the first slaves being brought over here from Africa. Before the world tonight, I give praise our ancestors who built this country and was today, along with the genocide of his native people. The 2020 presidential election is around the corner. Let's all mobilize. Let's all be on the right side of history. Make the, ro- make the moral choice between love versus hate. Let's do the right thing. You know I had to get that in there. <laughs> so uh, Spike Lee is somehow the racist. And by the way, according to Donald <laughs> Trump, uh, by the way, if you haven't seen Black Klansmen, let that be an advertisement for you to see it. Oh, yes. Don't want to give uh, too much away about the ending, but let's suffice to say it is very timely. Yep. Uh, and uh, if you haven't seen it, you should. Um, Green Book ended up winning the best picture, which was which was a good movie. Yeah, but okay. I don't know that I would have said it was, uh, you know, uh, best picture Oscar worthy. Yeah. But, you know, who knows? Maybe the vote was split among all the fantastic films that came out this year. It was a great year for film. It had to be the uh, the white savior film in that uh, green book instead of Black Klansman or Black Panther. Both of them uh, extraordinary achievements in filmmaking. But Indeed. Very quickly, you know who got robbed? Uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? documentary about Mr. Rogers. If you haven't seen that, see that. Everyone thought that was going to win Best Documentary. It didn't even get nominated. It should have been. You'll love it. You should see it. Also, Stan and Ollie. My favorite movie of the year, and speaking of getting robbed, uh, Steve Coogan and John C. Riley as uh, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, they got robbed. They should have both been nominated. Neither of them were. So do yourself a favor in this very difficult year. Uh, both of those movies will make you feel much better. Uh, both uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor and Stan and Ali. Go see them. You'll enjoy them. All right. Uh, that is it. We got to get out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer. And you know what? If you haven't stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help support us with our 10th anniversary of Green News Report recently, our 15th anniversary of bradblog.com, stop by bradblog.com slash donate, if only because today is Desi Doyen's birthday, and she's working on her birthday. We will let her keep everything that comes in over the next 24 (laughs) hours to bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you, Desi, and happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. Also, uh, my thanks to my guest today, Stephen Schwartz of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of the show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.